This podcast is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity of Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop talking about a potential future canonized saint. Have you been involved with or had requests for other potential saints? There was a few, and that was both in Harrisburg and here. There have been a couple others where people have said, oh, have you ever looked into cause of canonization for so-and-so? And Mm -hmm. really, there needs to be some kind of obvious devotion. There needs, it's just not something that a bishop just thinks up on his own. You Mm -hmm. know, there has to be that there's like a cult of devotion, we call it. And obviously, it should be someone who gives signs of heroic sanctity. Uh So a couple times where various people that were presented to me were, that were proposed, there really was no, what I would call cult. There wasn't any like movement as far as, you know, a lot of people like devoted to this person after their death. Mm -hmm. So it didn't really reach kind of like that minimum thing to even get started. This is different. So to clarify, many, many saints in heaven that are not canonized. Correct. Um, perhaps some, some relatives, you know, like they're certainly lived saintly lives, but don't qualify for the canonization process. Is the first step for somebody that is going to go through that process to be named as a saint by the church, is the first step for the bishop to approve it? Or is there a step before that? No, it's a, you're right. It's they have to petition the bishop. Okay, there's a petition. So I received a petition from the Congregation of Holy Cross because uh, Brother Columba O'Neill, whom we're going to talk about, is uh-huh. what is was a member of the congregation. He was a religious brother of the Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. And so they submit a petition. Does it have to have like a certain number of signatures? Kind of that kind of a petition, or no, no, okay. it could be just the superiors. But they also submit with it like all the reasons they have to provide like a biography and some evidence Uh of, of the holiness of the person. So the petition, I mean, the Bishop's not going to accept a petition unless it looks substantial. So even though it's not a, what we call a full investigation, because that happens after the Bishop accepts the petition, there's what could be called like a rudimentary. I mean, brother Philip Smith, who, who really presented me, with the petition from Congregation of Holy Cross, he had done a huge amount of research, uh-huh. a lot of testimonies from when Brother Columbo was alive, a ton of correspondence, just a lot. So really, it was a lot for me to read, but he did all the work. And I was just, the more I read, the more impressed I was. Yeah. In the end, I, of course, studied it and, and then prayed about it and decided to accept the petition. So does this happen at like a, a meeting that, or do you get a package in the mail with, with all these documents or? Well, both. I mean, uh, brother Philip would email me things. He gave me hard copies of a lot of things. We did meet also. Uh-huh. So it was kind of an ongoing thing over the course of several months. And I visited with him at the archives. He's the archivist for the Holy Cross Brothers, the Midwest okay. province. So I, he showed me some of the things of Brother Columba. And actually, we even went to the cemetery and prayed at his grave. So it was a very special visit that I had there. When did this start? I'm going to say a year ago. I, I'd have to look back on exactly when, but okay. it's probably about a year. 
And had you heard of Brother Columba before this? Only through one of the halls at Notre Dame is Columba Hall. Okay. And that's the residence for Holy Cross Brothers on the campus of Notre Dame. But I knew, uh, to be honest, no, I didn't know anything about his life. Because there's also a St. Columba. Correct. Already, if not Irish. multiple. Yeah. So, and, and I think he took his name probably from that. Probably, he yeah. was born John. And right? he was Irish descent. I mean, his parents were immigrants from Ireland. Yeah, his baptismal name was John. Uh-huh. John O'Neill. So his parents came from Ireland. They were immigrants. And uh, they came from Kilkenny in Ireland, and his parents' names were Michael and Ellen, and they had six children. John was the fifth child, and he was born on November 5th, 1848, in a little, little town that I don't even think exists anymore. Oh, really? Called Mackeysburg, Pennsylvania. Interestingly, it's in the coal regions of Pennsylvania, which is where I was born. Yeah. But I had never heard of Mackeysburg before. I don't think it still is there. Do you, do you know where it is? Yes, I did see. I forget exactly where, but it's in the general, that coal regions, which is part of the Appalachian Mountains, the hard coal region of Pennsylvania. Huh. Yeah, I was from, I was born in Mahanoy City. And I'd have to look and see how far away that was from Mackeysburg. When I get home sometime, I think I might look and see if there's anything to visit there. Oh, yeah. In Mackeysburg, I don't, or what was Mackeysburg. Right. But anyhow, John was born, and he was baptized just two days later because it wasn't expected that he would live. One of the big problems was he has this, had this congenital foot abnormality. That was pretty bad. So anyhow, so he was not real healthy when he was born, uh, but he's, he had a very devout Catholic faith in the family. He was raised in the faith. His father, Michael, was a coal miner, and like my all my ancestors, uh-huh. most of them were coal miners as well. And that was kind of the expectation that, that his sons would be coal miners. That's what you did. I understand that completely because that was the expectation of my ancestors as well. But because of John's health and the difficulty in walking and all that kind of stuff, he didn't work in the coal mines as a child. And I think that was tough on him growing up. He was obviously not in the best of health. He he couldn't like use a pickaxe, for example, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So in 19th century Pennsylvania mining towns, that was probably a, something of an embarrassment for him. So he tried to then, since he couldn't pick up the pickaxe, he tried to handpick slate, slate from coal to bring home some money for the family. But he was even unable to do that. So his poor health, his malformed foot, you know, those were problems. Of course, the parents, you know, what are they going to do? you know, this child who had these problems, by the time he was a teenager, I mean, he was such a good young man. He was very determined. He was a humble young man. And he didn't get much schooling. They didn't have that. I forget. I'd have to look back on how much schooling he had, but it was not like we have today. Family's already relatively poor. So what's he going to do? He got into this, had an interest in making shoes. There was a village cobbler. And, you know, he had this problem with his feet, uh-huh. uh, with one of his feet. So he couldn't go in the mines. So he kind of became an apprentice as a cobbler. 
so it's very interesting life. Of course, by this time, as he was young, there was the Civil War. A lot of the miners in Mackeysburg and the coal regions joined the Union Army. And he, as an apprentice to the village cobbler, was very you know, involved in making new shoes for, for them, for the soldiers. And he was about 15, 14 years old when all this was going on, Civil War, the cobbler shop then closed. He had this feeling that God was calling him to be a religious. Mm-hmm. Throughout his teenage years and his early 20s, he had this sense of a religious calling. So he set off with his cobbler tools <laughs> on a journey to discover and discern what God's call was. He thought it was so he he started working for parishes as he traveled and it was kind of like an itinerant kind of existence. And that wasn't easy. He still had this problem foot. But he was somewhat, you know, he was successful. He was able to, you know, make ends meet because there was a lot of demand for shoes. And then he would, as I said, work at local parishes, gave him time to spend in prayer, especially in the churches that he visited, prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. And then when he was about 20 years old, he left Pennsylvania and partnered with some cobbler and set off for Denver, Colorado. But on the way, they stopped at St. Louis. He had to rest his feet, okay, his crippled feet. Then they went on to Colorado, and then they separated. And and then John O'Neill had a pretty good career little career in Denver. He would attend the 6 a.m. mass and then go to work. People thought he was very pious to see this young man going to mass every morning. And he would receive communion every day, which was very unusual back then. Hmm. Usually, you know, people didn't receive communion frequently, but that was important to him. But he would spend a lot of time, hours in church, especially on Sundays, and then after that, he went on further west to California and was there for a few years, again, on foot, you know, mm-hmm. not easy for him, went to San Francisco. He'd practice his trade on the way so that he could make some money and then continue on. Uh, so he applied, when he got to California, he applied to a, join a religious community, but because of his foot condition, they did not accept him. Mm-hmm. Just like they didn't, he couldn't be a minor now, you know, he couldn't be religious at that point, but he wasn't really discouraged. You know, he he experienced this rejection, but he still felt God was calling him. And he learned from one of the other cobblers that about the congregation of Holy Cross. And this cobbler had been an apprentice in the shoemaker shop, the cobbler shop, at Notre Dame, they had at that time Notre Dame had what they called a manual labor school. So John O'Neill heard these stories about these working brothers at Notre Dame that taught things like carpentry and blacksmithing and tailoring huh. and various trades. So that gave him the idea: oh, maybe they'll accept me. You know, I'm a cobbler. So he wrote to the novice master at Notre Dame, you know, he's still in California, to find out if they would consider him. 
And then he met with, and I can't remember if he met them at Notre Dame or while he was in California or whatever, but he met two of the priests and was able to join the congregation, Hmm. which he did in 1874. He entered the novitiate. He became a novice at Notre Dame, and he took the name Columba. Again, as you mentioned, the Irish Saint Columba, who was very much uh, had that virtue of perseverance, mm. kind of like, you know, John O'Neill had, yeah. you know. So he was accepted. And really, Saint Columba was a model for him in his religious life. He took final vows in 1876. And one of the vows that they took, a fourth vow, was the vow of mission. They vowed to go anywhere in the world where the superior wanted to send him. I mean, he was so happy to make his final vows, and he volunteered to go anywhere. He said he'd be happy to go to India. And he also mentioned he'd be happy to go to Molokai to help Father Damien in his work with the lepers. Oh, wow. But instead, he ended up being sent to St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum in Lafayette, Indiana. So he wasn't really, he had, you know, volunteered to go to India or Molokai, and he was sent to Lafayette, Uh Lafayette. But while there, it's interesting, he would use Lord's water on the sick boys, and he said that there were some cures. Hmm. So this was kind of the first indication that he had this special gift. Took care of especially the boys who were sick, sick with the flu, whatever. He never took credit for the cures, but he would intercede to the, or he would pray to the sacred heart of Jesus through the immaculate heart of Mary. Mm. But there wasn't a lot of for him to do with shoes at this point. The boys by that time had their shoes. He had made a lot of shoes. But then I think he must have been getting a little bored or not feeling that useful at the orphan asylum. So he requested to leave the asylum. So he returned to Notre Dame and he was assigned to the cobbler shop at Notre Dame. This was in 1885. And that's where he remained until he died in 1923. So imagine this. He spent his most of his life at the cobbler shop at Notre Dame. 38 years. Just lived a simple life, a life of prayer, and making and repairing shoes. Uh He didn't leave. Notre Dame a lot. There were occasional trips, like he would visit his sister who lived in Iowa. But then something happened. Around the year 1890, he began distributing, or he would make these images, produce and and distribute images of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus. He made about 10,000 paper images by hand of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and about 30,000 cloth badges of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And this is while he was doing his other work and his other responsibilities. And, you know, all these people, students and faculty and everybody were coming to the shoe shop to have their shoes repaired or whatever. And he would see hundreds of people 
And a lot of people were writing letters to him because, you know, they heard that his prayers were efficacious and asking for favors through his intercession to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. In the early 1890s, the founder of Notre Dame, Father Edward Soren, was, got very sick. So he was given, Brother Columba was made the personal caretaker of Father Soren, the founder of Notre Dame, the superior. So that was, I think, for two or three years, he took care of Father Soren during his final days. And all this time, he was just kind of admired for his prayerfulness, his humility, his uh, cheerfulness. So after Father Soren died, the superior, the provincial, Father Corby, sent him back to full-time work at the cobbler shop. And at this point, you know, he was praying, he was working, and what he would do is when people would come, he would give them these badges, and he would share with them a prayer that they should say. And people who were sick, he would do that, and they would report that they were cured, they were healed. Mm. And this kind of started out gradually, and then more and more, and even more serious illnesses. So his fame kind of spread into South Bend, Iowa, where his sister was when he visited. Same thing was happening. He'd give these. So we have all this, these letters of healings and favors of people who receive these Sacred Heart or Immaculate Heart of Mary badges from Brother Columba. And of course, he'd be praying for these people as well. As a matter of fact, there are about 1,400 letters that testify to hit, to receiving favors or cures through Brother Columba's prayer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. 1,400? Yep. Wow. And then we have also about 150 letters that Brother Columba himself wrote where he talks described his vocation. I mean, those are the 1,400 letters that attest to favors or cures, but we actually have it. They have in the archives of the Midwest Province of Brothers actually over 10,000 letters that were written to him, hmm. 1,400 of which said they were received cures or favors. Pretty amazing. I mean, I've read some of them. He would pray to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and he had this very childlike faith. I mean, he just expected that cures would take place. Uh -huh. I mean, he would be praying novenas and other prayers. He would even help those who weren't practicing the faith. And he never was seeking fame. It wasn't obviously there was no seeking money, anything like that. He just had this incredible confidence in the sacred heart of Jesus. Hmm. So he had this simplicity. The only other saint canonized who was a member of the Congregation of Holy Cross was Brother Andre Bassett. And he was a doorkeeper. Right. So you think about his trust and confidence in St. Joseph. He prayed through, and he was very simple, very humble, mm -hmm. doorkeeper. And he had this tremendous devotion to St. Joseph. And now we have the Oratory of St. Joseph in Montreal, the biggest church in the world dedicated to St. Joseph. This was this humble doorkeeper. Right. This is kind of like a mirror of Brother yeah. Andre. 
except the devotion is to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. But this is a shoemaker, by the way, who who had a cri- crippled feet, etc. Now he did get some relief from that because he there was a doctor who I think from Chicago or something that operated on him, and he did better. Hmm. And then the last hours of his life, the last days of his life, we also see he had a peaceful death, but so many came to see him. The brothers were taking care of him. The priest brought him Holy Communion, and he was conscious. He never complained, never asked for anything, just what was necessary. And news of his death when he died spread all over, and the people of South Bend and members of the community, religious sisters, so many came to view his body before it was even in the casket. Hmm. The parlor of the community house became like a shrine. So it's there's evidence that people considered him really holy. Yeah, The members of the community, the sisters from St. Mary's, the students at Notre Dame, so many professors and, uh, you know, they came to, to see him his body after he died and they had to wait in long lines to get near the, and people would bring their rosaries, their, the badges that he had given them medals, cards, and they would put them on his hands or on his face. So you had all these people, rich and poor and academics and very simple people, all of them believing in the sanctity of this man. And I read the homily at his, at his funeral, and I read the letter that the superior wrote to all the members of the congregation about Brother Columba and about his death, very clear that he was considered, you know, a man of of, of real great holiness. Hmm. And all he did, you know, he spent his life promoting this devotion to the Sacred Heart, but he was a simple religious who loved God Remind me of the words of Jesus, learn from me because for I am meek and humble of heart. Yeah. So you see this meekness, this humility, and then all these wonderful cures that were attributed to him. Well, I think we could do a whole episode probably on humility. And like you mentioned, so many of these saints, it's kind of maybe sad that they were humiliated, you know, and, and maybe through physical issues or family or society or whatever it is, but that can sometimes foster a humility. I'm sure there's lots of lessons to learn from there. I, so that might be a future episode, but I want to continue to talk about Servant of God, Brother Columba, uh, what the process has been. You mentioned some of it, but then also the future path to potentially being canonized as a saint. Coming up, um, Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Been talking about Brother Columba O'Neill, who is now servant of God. 
That's which, right, because I accepted the petition. Yeah. So accepting the petition is all that it takes to become a servant of God? That's my understanding. I have okay. to tell you, Kyle, <laughs> this has been very complicated for me. Yeah? Because I've been reading the documents on the process of canonization, and it's kind of unclear in certain areas. Like, I was trying to figure out, and I've kind of... It seems, I don't want to say this with 100% certainty, once the petition is accepted, he can be called a, a servant of God. Okay. I always thought that that was something that came from Rome. and But I've been told that no, it's when I accept the petition, which is called the libellus in canon law. So I don't want to say that with, a, I'm just saying what I've been told, but I I find like, okay, now what's the next step? I've, you know, the next step is I have to present this do a consultation with the U.S. bishops uh -huh. at a bishop's meeting, a meeting of the USCCB. And I have to do a consultation with the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome. In other words, I'll send them a lot of the stuff that I have mm -hmm. and explain why I would like to go forward with this. One of the things they want to know is what benefit this would be for the church, too, oh, given you know his particular life and mm -hmm. virtues. So I'm kind of going one step at a time. It's my understanding that there will come a point, let's say I get these positive results of the consultations, I would send that to Rome. I think at some point then we there's the official opening of the cause. Okay. Okay. So I've accepted the petition, but we can't say that the cause has been officially opened yet. I think I need the nihil obstat, it's called, like kind of like the congregation in Rome saying, no problem, initiate it. Okay. You know? Now, I always thought at that point he becomes called servant of God. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have a little bit of a question mark in my mind because I'm not getting a clear answer on that question. You'd think that the documents from Rome would say very clearly, but I haven't found it. Huh. But I do have canonists helping. Yeah. And at that point, then the hard work, the whole more thorough diocesan investigation. Now, because he's been deceased for so long, this is called the historical cause. He died in 1923. So we don't have witnesses still alive. So we have to depend a lot on the letters and testimonies that were given when he was alive or or after he died by people who, who uh, knew him and, you know, but a lot of the work has been done. And I think it after all of that is gathered, and there's gonna be that's gonna be more work, but we have a lot of it already. I think we send boxes to Rome. And <laughs> then they will study this for, for heroic virtue. You know, there's also the important thing of cures now. You know, like are there any is there any evidence we have? of cures through his intercession mm -hmm. now or since his death. Because all I know of right now are all these cures from when he was alive. Uh -huh. But they'll want to, that'll be an important important thing. But so I really can't explain the whole process. At certain at a certain point, there's the declaration by Rome that of the title venerable. Mm -hmm. And then of course beatification would require one miracle. Mm -hmm. That is examined by the medical commission there. There's also like a theological commission, which will look at 
his writings and everything. Oh. See if there are any theological problems. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And then the medical bureau, if there's any reported miracles, and they're very strict on that. There can be no natural explanation at all. Mm-hmm. But again, this is not going to be examining the cures that took place that that we have testimony from letters. That wouldn't be enough because we can't yeah. substantiate it or, or verify Co- it. Correct through science. Co- exactly. And it has to be miracles after the person's death, not while they're still alive. Oh, interesting. So just, you mentioned them in there, but the, the four steps being servant of God, mm-hmm. check which mark. Is maybe, <laughs> maybe, which I hope, I think. <laughs> and then venerable. Yes. And then blessed. blessed. And then canonized. Saint. Yeah. And that would require a second miracle. Yeah. So you mentioned needing to take this to the USCCB. You've been on the receiving end of this where yes. other people have presented it. Uh, yeah. Is that a big deal? Well, I would get up and I'd kind of give a summary of his life, mm-hmm. but they'll also have a written summary that we'll, we'll have provided them ahead of time. That ahead of time. Read. Yeah. But it's not going to be possible for this November. It's probably going to have to wait until the bishops meeting either in June of 2023 or November of 2023. Okay. And I think in the past there's been multiple of these. Yeah. I mean, I'd say in a year's time, I mean, there's definitely more than like my early years as a bishop. This was pretty rare, Hmm. but there's been a lot more like I'd say three or four a year where the bishops are, where bishops are presenting potential candidates for sainthood. And it's just a consultation. I mean, I have to consult and then I would share the results of that consultation with Rome. And okay. I could say, yes, the U.S. bishops support us going forward with right. this. What, what do you think of, has been most inspirational about his story for you? Or what do you hope that we take from it? I would say his childlike faith, mm-hmm. his humility, his devotion to the Sacred Heart, and, and also his perseverance in his vocation and in spite of his disability— his feet, problem with his feet, et cetera. I mean, there's just so much. It was just that simplicity and humility and meekness. I would say he did learn from Jesus, who said, learn from me, mm-hmm. for I am meek and humble of heart. I mean, that was, that was Brother Columba. Yeah. And it was that humble trust in the love of Jesus that, I think obtained the graces that so many people experienced, Hmm. you know, through the healings of not only the body, but also of the spirit. I mean, people who returned to the practice of the faith, et cetera, having met him and been the recipient of his prayers. I mean, I think of all those Notre Dame students back then, the early 1900s. I mean, he impressed his brother, religion brothers who uh, in Holy Cross, and the priests, and the sisters, and then the faculty and the students, the people of South Bend. I mean, this is really neat for our diocese. You know, the knowledge about him and you know devotion. You know, that did continue after Brother Columbus' death, but I would say around 1960 or so, he started to be forgotten. 
And that was very sad. You know, I don't know how Rome will look on that. Like, is that a, a negative for the cause? I don't know. But when I think about it, 1923, for at least for a few decades, I mean, they named that hall after him. Right. But like, I didn't know about him until all this started. Mm-hmm. I've talked to Holy Cross religious who didn't know much about him. So along the way, he kind of got forgotten. And I really am grateful to this brother, Philip Smith, who, and becoming archivist for the Holy Cross brothers, started reading and seeing all this stuff because they had a lot of his stuff. Yeah. All these letters and everything. I mean, what a huge task that was. But obviously, why would they have kept all of that? You right. know, if he was for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And really, it'll be kind of neat in the sense it'll be 2023 that I would hope that I can officially begin the cause. In other words, that I'll have gotten by then the consultations that I have to, yeah. and they'll say, go ahead with the diocesan investigation, further investigation. Also, there would be an ex- exhumation of the body somewhere along the line. I mm. think that's somewhere around the time of the beatification, I think. But I've already prayed at his grave. If you ever go to Notre Dame, say a prayer, go over and, you know, he's buried with all the other Holy Cross priests and brothers in that cemetery on the campus, you know, not far from Moreau Seminary. It's kind of on that road that, yeah, it's, I don't know how to describe how to get there, but um, but it's where Father Soren's buried, Father Hesburgh's buried. Yeah. And, you know, you just have to do a little walking around to find it, but that's a good place to pray. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing about his life. We'll put links in the show notes for some articles. There was today's Catholic had an article. There's some articles on the Holy Cross website. So uh, we'll have links to those if people want to learn more about them or read about them or share that with other people. Uh, we'll post that at spokestreet.com slash askbishop. If you're listening on the radio, you can find the show notes there. But thank you, Bishop, for another great episode and for sharing about the the life of possibly servant of God, Brother Columba. And uh, I should mention there was a book written about him. It's not in, pr- in print anymore. Oh. I think it was back in, well, I, I know the second printing was in 1957. So, huh. and it has the imprimatur of Bishop John Knoll, Archbishop Knoll. Wow. And it's entitled These Two Hearts. A story of Brother Columbo O'Neill by Brother Ernest Ryan, hmm. CSC. Maybe I should look into a third printing. I just just mentioning that made me think I should talk to OSB about that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right. Or if anybody has original copies of that, they can they can pass it on to you, Bishop. Yeah. Well, I have a copy, oh, but you? my copy is uh, it's just a photocopied copy. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not the a copy. It's right. not the book itself, but someone did a photocopy of the book and gave it. That's got to me. be in some parish library. Yeah, somebody's got to have a copy of that around here. These two hearts. Maybe they could call Redeemer Radio to let you know if they have it. Yeah, we'll come pick it up. And it was it was published <laughs> by Dujari Press at Notre Dame, huh? And which is now, I guess, Ave Maria Press, unless it's a separate one. But again, I don't know when it was the original, but the second printing was in 1957. I'm not aware that there was ever a third printing. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.